Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of this podcast. We recently recorded a bonus episode on the David Lynch version of Dune, and we've got more in the works on Ghostbusters, Afterlife, and the new season of Succession. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky and Tasha Robinson. Scott Tobias is not with us this week. He was last seen aimlessly wandering the beach at Coney Island. Uh, joining us this week instead is Odie Henderson, a longtime film critic whose work appears regularly at RogerEbert.com. Odie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is a part of the show where we usually have a brief, lighthearted bit before getting into the movies. We've read your tweets. We know it's the most popular part of the show, and no one ever <laughs> skips past it. So I created an elaborate skit for this one involving deeply emotional dialogue and swelling music. Everyone had parts to play. Then I ran it by our audio engineer, Dan Jakes, who told me we just don't have the budget for it. So let's get into it. Genevieve, want to tell us about this week's pairing? Sure. Released in 1959, Imitation of Life was the final feature directed by Douglas Sirk, the German-born filmmaker who found great success in Hollywood, directing a variety of films, most memorably a string of immaculately realized melodramas for producer Ross Hunter that included Written on the Wind, Magnificent Obsession, and All That Heaven Allows. Imitation of Life ended that run with a second adaptation of Fanny Hurst's 1933 novel of the same name. Here, Lana Turner and Juanita Moore star as two mothers, Laura and Annie respectively, whose lives become entwined while both are down on their luck, then stay entwined as Laura's luck changes and she becomes a famous actor. So do the lives of their daughters, Susie and Sarah Jane, the latter of whom tries to reject her racial identity by distancing herself from Annie and presenting herself as white. We were reminded of Imitation of Life by our guest, who referenced it in his review of Passing, the recently released directorial debut of Rebecca Hall. An adaptation of Nella Larson's 1929 novel, it's a story of two childhood friends, played by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, who reconnect by chance at a New York tea room while both are passing as white. So this week we'll visit the glossy but tearful world of Douglas Sirk, and then next week we'll leave its Eastman color surroundings to explore the black and white New York of passing. Please join us. You've always had that. Yes, by telephone, by postcard, by magazine interviews. You've given me everything but yourself. I'm white. White. White! Starring Lana Turner as the great stage star Laura Meredith. The men in her life, John Gavin. Dan O'Hurlihy, Robert Alden. If the Dramatist Club wants to eat and sleep with you, you eat and sleep with them. It's disgusting. It pays off. Her daughter, Sandra Dee, Susan Conner, who was born to be hurt. I don't want to have to come through back doors or feel lower than other people or apologize for my mother's color. Don't say that. She can't help her color. But I can. Juanita Moore. Hers was the shame and the pain. Sarah Jane Johnson, you put your clothes on and get out of this place. And the incomparable Mahalia Jackson. Trouble out of the world, I'm going to Here's Los Angeles Times critic Patrick Schuer writing about Imitation of Life in 1959. Quote, Imitation of Life is the remake 25 years later of Fanny Hearst's Tearjerker, but it didn't jerk my tears. I was too aware of its manufactured or remanufactured melodrama. Douglas Sirk's direction snaps right along a la old time movie, but somehow it's all on the surface. 
Schur wasn't alone among critics in disliking the film while recognizing that audiences connected with it, turning it into one of the year's biggest hits. In fact, that divide was so notable that the LA Times ran an item with the headline, Critics Cry At, Public Cries With, Imitation. The film was hated in 1959, or loved, and reactions to it seemed to have everything to do with whether you were a critic or just someone going to the movies. All that changed just a few years later, thanks in part to the critics-turned-filmmakers of the French New Wave, who embraced Cirque, and thanks in part to Cirque himself, who, in the 60s and 70s, spoke to publications like Cahiers du Cinéma and film comment about his craft in ways that made clear how much was going on beneath the surfaces of his films and how much irony was baked into their design. Yes, for instance, he knew Lana Turner's imitation of life costumes were garish. That was part of the point. Yes, he knew Turner and Sandra Dee's characters were unsympathetic. No, he didn't tell the actors. Actors, he said to Film Comet in 1978, you shouldn't tell about technical matters. They lose their innocence. But it's not like the surfaces don't matter. What makes Imitation of Life and other Cirque films so remarkable is the way they transmit on two wavelengths at once without creating interference. It's possible to watch Imitation of Life as a melodrama, aware of how melodramas work, and packed with design details that signal it's satirizing the world it's depicting. But it's also possible to be swept along in the emotions of its story, to watch it as an effective tearjerker, and to give in to those tears. These aren't two mutually exclusive experiences. That makes Cirque's films potent in ways that few other filmmakers can claim. They grip viewers with highly emotional stories executed with the full force of a director who understands the mechanics of Hollywood filmmaking and how to use movie stars. They also ask pointed questions about movies and America, a country seen through the eyes of a German filmmaker who fled his native land as it became overtaken by fascism. And in Imitation of Life, a lot of those questions have to do with race at a time when not many Hollywood movies want to talk about race at all. That talk mostly comes via the story of Sarah Jane, the light-skinned daughter of Juanita Moore's Annie, who's played as a child by Karen Dicker and as a teenager by Susan Conner. And here we have to note that neither of these actresses are black, and however strong their performances, these casting choices would not fly today. Sarah Jane is depicted as wanting to be white from the start, refusing a black doll and denying her race at school. She's mortified when her mother shows up in class and her classmates realize her color for the first time. As a teenager, she dates a white boy, played by 50s teen idol Troy Donahue, without revealing her identity. Ultimately, she leaves her mother in an attempt to sever all ties and winds up regretting her choices after it's too late. It's heartbreaking stuff, sure to inspire all but the most unrepentantly racist audience members to shake their heads. But there's heartbreak too and pointed critique in another moment, one in which the dying Annie tells Lana Turner's Laura, with whom she spent the last decade, that she belongs to a Baptist church in several lodges, that she has, in effect, a life beyond Laura. Laura says she didn't know this, to which Annie replies, Miss Laura, you never asked. In Cirque's world, surrounded by a catalog of all the riches booming post-war America had to offer, it's possible to think you're the hero of the story, only to learn you're part of a bigger, much more complicated story you don't really understand at all. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in. Let me through. So we usually start this conversation by saying, what's your history with the film? Uh, I want to expand the talk about Cirque in general, but I, let's, let's, I want to throw to our guest, uh, Odie Henderson first, who who pointed out this is his third favorite film. Uh, why is this your third favorite film? And I think just because everyone else will, will want to know, what are, what are number two and one? <laughs> well, uh, two is Sunset Boulevard. One is All About Eve. In fact, I'm freaking out on All About Eve mug right now. <laughs> nice. um, a little story behind this movie. My grandmother, my mother's mother, uh, she died New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, 1975. I was four years old. And so, in effect, I had no grandparents. My grandfather died when I was one. I never really knew my mother's parents. But I had one memory of my grandmother. And that memory ties to this movie. I had gone to see her in her room because I was angry at my mother. 
And I went to her mother to get my mother in trouble. And she asked me that I love my mother. And I said, no, you know, I'm four. So, <laughs> and she told me that I should love my mother. And then she told me this story about this woman who died of a broken heart because her daughter did not love her. And Lana Turner, and I remember it was Lana Turner because I thought of Tina Turner, that Lana <laughs> and Tina were related. And she said that Lana Turner threw her the most expensive funeral a colored woman had ever had. And her daughter, who had abandoned her, ran to the funeral, jumped on the coffin and said she had killed her mother. And it was very, very sad. And I should love my mother because of this. And she didn't talk about anything about passing or anything that a four-year-old cannot understand. The bottom line was that I was supposed to love my mother. About two years later, Channel 11, WPIX here in New York, they ran a movie with Lana Turner produced by Ross Hunter called Madam X. Madam X is a tearjerker. Lana Turner's on trial for murder. Her son, Keir DeLay, doesn't know that he's her son. She gave him up when he was young. And at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, Lana Turner dies. And we cried like babies, my cousins and I, watching this movie as many times as we saw it. And one day, Channel 11, which is known for running all these Ross Hunter movies, the big giant Eastman Color Universal International logo at the beginning, ran Imitation of Life. And my aunt told me it was going to be very, very sad. And I knew that because Lana Turner was in it. And all <laughs> Lana Turner movies were sad. Of course, <laughs> I hadn't seen the Postmodernizing twice yet. So watching this movie and then it clicks, this is the movie my grandmother told me about. And it hit me really, really hard because as I mentioned to you, I don't have very many movies on my grandmother. So I'm about seven years old when this is happening. And when Annie Johnson, the Juanita Moore character dies, it was like my grandmother had died all over. Mm -hmm. And everything made sense. And then Mahalia Jackson, my grandmother's favorite singer, shows up and starts singing. And I just lost. And my cousins and I were like on the floor on top of each other crying like we're at a Baptist funeral. And every time I've seen this movie, that's happened. When it gets to the point where Mahalia Jackson starts singing, I'm just gone. And in addition to this movie and, and, and Madame X, there were a lot of other melodrama movies that I saw on TV as a kid that I loved because they were women's stories and they were soapy and they were pretty and they were about things that boys shouldn't like, let alone cry at. And I just loved them. And so this movie kind of, as I got older and understood what's happening and understood other surf movies, it started to make sense to me how great it was. And also that extra tie to my grandmother, it's kind of like my memory of her is wrapped in this movie. And I think that's why it's as high up on my list as it is. Behind it is Chinatown and behind that is Do the Right Thing. So that's four and five on the list, by the way. Okay, that's list. fascinating. When, when your grandmother told you the story, did she make it clear that she was describing the plot of a movie? Yes. Or... Okay. The way the way you the, the way you said it, it it almost sounded like she was telling you this like like it had happened in real life. I was just wondering what that oh, experience sorry, of watching the movie was. Clarify that she mentioned that Lana Turner was an actress. Okay. <laughs> Not her friend Lana. <laughs> no, I, I just remember Lana Turner because like I said, oh, she's related to Tina Turner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was aware that it was a movie. Um yeah. but probably at a, as a four year old, I don't think it really would have mattered. You know, mm -hmm. grandparents tell you stories, right? Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, that just really speaks to, you know, the ways sometimes personal relationships or who we find out about a culture from who invites us in uh, just has a huge, huge impact on how we how we take it in and how we digest it. Tasha, had you seen this film before? I had never seen this movie before. Okay. Um, I've actually watched very little Cirque. Uh, I believe maybe All That Heaven Allows uh, is the only Cirque I've watched. I'm certainly not an expert. The melodramatic tone of the movies of his that I've seen is definitely something that, that I struggle against. And in this particular case... I think it really feels like a message movie of the times. You know, it, it feels like it's, it's saying important things to very specific audiences. And I, while <laughs> there's so much in this film that is still relevant and important today, particularly about the, the artificial construct of race and the ridiculousness of some of the people that feel it's their life mission to enforce that construct, the acting, uh, just really, bothers me at times. And I felt the same way about uh, Imitation of Life. It's just a sense that a message was being brought across that that is important and valuable. But at the same time, like the soapy tone didn't didn't hugely work for me. 
So I think there's a lot going on in this film that's really interesting and significant and and important. And like on a construction level, which we can get into in a bit, I think it's fascinating and and ambitious. But watching Cirque's movies doesn't necessarily leave me with a, a burning desire to seek out more of his movies, mm. in part because I really admire the craft, but the emotions are a little overboard for me. And in part because they're big tearjerkers, and I've never been one to, to seek out the weepy experience when I know it's the weepy experience. Well, well, Tasha, you and I are on the same page as far as our like Cirque experience going into this film, which I, I hadn't seen before either. I had also only seen All That Heaven Allows, um, but we are on opposite pages as far as our reaction to it. And as we have established on this podcast uh, many times before, I, I am the weepy one. You know, I will, I will cry at, uh, at most things that are intended to make me cry. And oh boy. Did I cry <laughs> at, at, at this film? And as far as, you know, your points about the, you know, the acting and sort of like the messagey feel of it, I don't disagree, but I think maybe I just like operate on that frequency as a moviegoer more than you do, which is fine and well established, like I said on, on, the, on this podcast. But when it comes in particular to the storyline about racial identity, like if you're talking about like that as the message component of this, I think tonally it's approached like on the same level as all the other storylines happening in this movie. Like it, it is a very, to use the like a term that is used derisively towards Cirque, or at least was at the time, it's like soap opera you know? But they're all the storylines, all the characters are like operating on that level. So it just, it feels of a piece to me. It doesn't feel like it has like flop sweat about it, you know? It, it feels intentional. And anything like tonally or stylistically like that, that is heightened, as long as it's intentional, which it sounds from Keith's keynote was the case, it tends to work for me. And this film really worked for me, especially from the funeral scene. I'm like, how, Tasha, did you really not cry at Mahalia Jackson in the funeral? Really? Do you want me to plead the fifth on this? Mm. Uh, I, I just like, it doesn't feel physically possible. <laughs> but, but, okay, but it's fine. It's fine. You know, it's, it, it's, it's your brain. It, it works how it does. But yeah, I mean, the last like It's not her brain. Minutes, I worry uh, about it. It's her heart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so wait, I, I don't think we're done with, with Genevieve's uh, thought here, but just how exactly how much did you weep at this movie, Keith? Uh, well, this time less, but but, but I wish to say, uh, but I, but I mean, I, I just in Cirque in general, I, I'm kind of in awe of the Cirque films I've seen. There's plenty I I haven't. I've seen all the big the bigger melodramas, and then I've also seen uh, Tarnished Angels, and and uh, there's always Tomorrow, and and I need to go back and see a few more of these too. And I, I'd like to see some of his his non melodrama films. Just you know, I don't know what they're like at all. But but I do know that of uh, in this zone, I feel like. Everything's kind of perfect, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, uh, the performances are what they need to be for the material. Every, you know, you have to think about every detail of every frame because Cirque thought about every detail of every frame. I feel like everything contributes in a, in a way. And again, like, kind of like I talked about before, I, I do feel like they work on an emotional level. This is a very powerful film. Um, his other other films are, are, are quite emotionally powerful as, as, as well. But also just as something to study and look at and, and to understand what's what's going on. I, I, it's it's a it's a dense it's a dense text and and I just I, there's just there's just so much to take in here. And, and in terms of like the yeah, it's a message movie, but I, I do think movie watching is a form of time travel. And if you can think about how what this film was saying about the times in which it was made, that's certainly deeply relevant to our times now and and, and where, where we came from. But uh, just, you know, if you think about this in the context of the audience that saw it, um, you know, you, you in some ways you kind of trick people into watching a, 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 a movie about racism by bringing them into a lot of Turner Weepy, uh, but it's still a lot of Turner Weepy that works on those terms as well. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's great. It's it's not my third favorite film of all time, but it's it's certainly a film I I hold in great esteem. As far as what the audiences of the time would experience, I would love to know a lot more about that. Like I I actually started doing a little research into it because I very much wanted to know. Like this is so clearly a message movie. Was the message effective, or did mm -hmm. people dismiss it at the time? And 
I don't spend a lot of my days uh, mourning that there was no internet and no Twitter in 1959. <laughs> but in this particular case, and in cases like this, uh, I just, I really want to see, you know, the the response of, of the general populace, uh, not filtered through, you know, there we can read old newspapers and get the sense of what critics at the time said. And we can even read articles that that say, like, here's how it was received in the South, or here's what somebody said coming out of it. But in terms of that experience of getting people's unfiltered thoughts through the internet, or even just the experience of sitting in a theater with people experiencing it for the first time in, in 1959, I would love to know how the average audience member felt about this. And anything that I could try to imagine in that vein would just be like a huge projection based on a completely different version of society. You know, when this film came out, we were only a, a few years into the American civil rights movement and a lot of the more like chaotic elements of it, the bigger struggles um, and the the more nationwide awareness was yet to come. So, you know, it was, it was, a, it's not like we've solved racism, but it was a completely different mentality. It was a completely different era. And I just feel like so much in this movie is not landing now as it would then, which is not a bad thing. Again, I think there's a ton of very relevant stuff here, but you know, as you say, one of the really important things here is is how it hit at the time. And I just wish we knew more about that. I wish it was possible to know more about that. Well, first of all, I mean, this material is known. In 1959, people would have known this material already. The book of 1933 was enormous. It sold very well. That's why there was a remake in 1959. 1934, you know, there's the Claudette Colbert version, which is nominated for Best Picture. So this isn't exactly a new story. You have Pinky, uh, like 1947 or eight, uh, the, uh, because Ilya Kazan movie with uh, Jean Crane and, uh, Ethel Waters and a similar kind of story. She's passing for white. Uh, so the story is not new. The issue, I think, of putting the Juanita Moore, the Annie Johnson, Sarah, uh, Jane story into the line of Turner Weepy is very clever. It's what Douglas Sirk was known for. This rope dope. He lures you in for one thing and then he hits you with something else. It's the reason why the Lana Turner entire story is so superficial. Because he's telling you, hey, this look over here. This is more interesting story that we're trying to talk about. Spike Lee does this in Jungle Fever. It's his 50s message picture. And he brings you in with the lore of, you know, interracial sex. And then there's a whole other story about John Turturro's Marty character, type character. And Samuel L. Jackson's crackhead. It's a complete rope dope The story about the interracial sex is the most boring part of Jungle Fever. Just like the <laughs> Lana Turner story here is, if you love Lana Turner, it's gonna not going to be boring to you. But even Cirque knows that the other story is more interesting. He even has more dramatic cues when the Black actors are on the screen, when certain things happen in their story. He does that thing he always does with mirrors. Cirque loves mirrors, reflecting people and their uh, images and what they don't want you to see on the screen in his, uh, his light and dark cinematography. He likes to do that type of thing. All this stuff is kind of a culmination of what Sark had been doing for all these years. You know, up until this point, this is his last Hollywood picture. So I, I don't think that people walked into this blind. I mean, people knew what it was about, what was going on. That's why they liked it and why the critics were like, we're tired of this. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Have you had a chance to see the 34 version or uh, we all kind of talked a little about how much Cirque we've seen. Like, have you sought out a lot of other Cirque movies? Uh, I've seen practically everything he's done. Uh, if you don't want a melodrama, you might want to try the movie he made with Lucy. It's called Lord. They use her as bait to catch a serial killer. Mm. It's quite noir. Oh yeah, I saw, I saw that one too. That, that that's sounds good. Like fun. Yeah. So the original imitation of life is closer to the book, a lot closer to the book in terms of the plot. And Fanny Hurst, and uh, she kind of ditches the Sarah Jane character who's called Piola in the book and in the 34 version, hmm. kind of gets rid of her. She doesn't come back uh, in the book. She goes off to Brazil or someplace, if I remember correctly, and she's never seen again. In the 34 version and in Cirque's version, they thought it'd be more dramatic to have her come back and do the Baptist funeral thing, throwing herself on the coffin and saying she killed her mother because obviously it's a lot more dramatic. Um, in both instances, I think the 34 version is, has some issues in terms of how it would not play today. 
how the Louise Beavers character, who's great, by the way, both actresses are great in this movie, in the original, how she doesn't want any money for her waffle recipe and the movie's pancake recipe. And it's these kind of an itchy feeling about the relationship between her and Claudette Colbert in the, in the, uh, the 34 version. The interesting thing that kind of ties to the movie you're going to talk about next time, passing, is that the woman who played the uh, daughter who was passing for white was a black actress who Universal asked her to pass for white and she refused. And basically, she didn't have much of a career because of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's interesting that this is one of the rare times they cast a black actor passing for white because normally in, in 59, you couldn't do it. The Hayes Code was already against the 34 version because of the whole thoughts of any kind of interracial kissing, romance, sexuality. The 59 version, they had to cast a white person, just like in Pinky and every other movie that has passing, you know, tragic mulatto type things. They'd always get a white person because you couldn't have any kind of interracial interaction between actors. So the 34 version is kind of uh, ahead of its time for doing that. But it's one of the rare instances where you do have an actress, a black actress playing this part. Yeah, I watched the 34 version in prepping for this too. It is it is quite good. The Annie character is called is called Delilah, I think, as in the original book. It's like in the book, yeah. Right. And and then it's a that character is a little a little more stereotyped, but uh, Beaver's performance is so good. You can feel her kind of pushing against it. The attitudes are, are interesting and, and like there's the, the signature scene and it, it's not even clear. It's not clear how much this is commentary, how much is just, you know, the story, but, but uh, Colbert's character offers her 20% of, of, of both the whole empire of, of pancakes uh, off of, <laughs> off of, uh, of the, uh, or is it pancakes or waffles in the film? I can't remember. It's but uh, uh yeah, uh, off off of her recipe, and then offers her twenty percent, but which she doesn't but, uh, take, right? Yeah, which she doesn't take, and and but uh, but it does get that that movie does get bogged down in in, in Claudette Colbert's daughter's character, like a love triangle, and and it's actually really boring, and I wanted to get back to the the more interesting story, but but it's it's quite it's quite interesting, it's really worth worth your time thinking out. We should say it's uh, directed by John Stahl. But getting back to this one, why don't we talk about the performances a little bit? Um, Turner is the only real movie star coming into this, and and she was quite a big star at the time, but also at this moment kind of infamous because she just there was a whole scandal where where her daughter had killed her boyfriend, who was a gangster named Johnny Stampanato, which would have been very much at the front of mind of everyone seeing this film. You know, as Conor and, and Dee were newcomers, Conor, a little bit of trivia, is is the daughter of Lupita Tovar, who is the star of the, the Spanish-language version of Dracula, uh, which is a, a lot of fun. And she's the mother of Paul and Chris White, the filmmakers, too. So there's there's a, an interesting history there. Uh, but they were she and Sandra Dee were both both newcomers. Uh, and Juanita Moore had some credits, but was, gets the end introducing in the credits, uh, opening credits, because she was not well-known at all. So Turner is definitely giving a movie star's performance. I know... How would you characterize the performances of everybody else? Tasha. I mean, Sandra D is the one that bothers me here. She's just, she's so big. There's so much of her. And I understand that she's playing a very immature character who's also, I think, meant to be a little bit irritating. But uh, I just, God, she's just like both the the child version of Susie and the teen version of Susie. I just... I just wanted to put my hands on her shoulders and say, calm down and speak at a normal volume. It's going to be all right. Like I, I'm, I'm putting on my NPR voice. You can just speak in normal tones and uh, <laughs> use normal sentences. It's it's going to be, we understand what you're saying. Uh, it's She's so shrill, like at, at every single moment of this movie. But the performances are, are all pretty big for the most part. Wanting to more, I think, is... Her acting comes across to me as like like playing a stereotype, like playing the the role of the the docile and, and peaceable and willing to get along at, at any cost kind of woman. Her smile is so big in like the first half of the movie is like I feel like every time she's on screen, it's just like that really like big, like almost painful looking smile she has on her face. Yeah, but I think that's there's an effort there too, though. I, yeah. I feel like this is someone yeah. who this has this is how she's right. gotten through the world. Yeah, I no, feel like I, you can you can feel a lot going on beneath the surface. Like you can feel that what you're seeing 
most of the time is a surface and that there's something else there. And then uh, Lana Turner, I think, uh, does a really important job here of of playing somebody who has the the dignity and chops to be a successful actress and just like has presence from the start. I think there are a lot of really interesting performances here, maybe most specifically from Alan Alda's father, Robert Alda, as the scummy agent who last night in Soho's her. Uh, basically, <laughs> I had serious last night in Soho flashbacks watching mm. this. So I like, I don't know, a lot of these performances feel pretty artificial to me. I really enjoyed Lana Turner, and I, I think Juanita Moore is doing a really excellent job of of layers. Uh, but a lot of the rest of them just felt very, very big and very stagey to me a lot of the time. I guess I want to defend Sandra D a little bit while also acknowledging that the the, the young, young versions of, of Susie and Sarah Jane are very much, I think, what you're describing. But I'm also willing to chalk that up to them being kids. Sandra D, like... <sighs> I th- it works for that character and in particular that character's storyline which we haven't really her storyline in like the final act of the film which we haven't really touched on yet which is very like Mildred Piercy you know like she basically falls in love with uh, her mom's boyfriend or thinks she falls in love with him and uh, you know it's a it, it creates this like mother daughter tension between Laura and Susie at like the end of the movie that just gets completely obliterated <laughs> when Annie dies and you realize that oh as far as like mother daughter conflicts goes this is kind of absurd you know but I feel like that absurdity comes through in large part because of Sandra D's performance and she's just so besotted and so wide-eyed and so juvenile you know but in feeling like she's a grown-up and like that is what that character is going through. And I feel like that is like maybe the age she was at and the point she was at in her, her career, kind of what Sandra D was going through too. So like, obviously it's maybe a little quote unquote shrill if that's like not again, the frequency you're operating on, but it didn't, I, I was kind of relieved to see Susie come back in that guise because she really, really graded on me as a very <laughs> young child. And Susan Conner as Sarah Jane, like that, I feel is an even bigger leap in quality. But as as they age up, you know, like she has a lot to carry as a uh, uh, eighteen year old Sarah Jane, a lot more than than Susie does, and I think she handles it pretty well. But young Sarah Jane, again, like that character has to sell so much, and she's so young, and you know, I don't know how much Cirque was maybe directing the these child actors versus just like kind of letting them go. But I feel like Juanita Moore has to really kind of carry those early scenes between Annie and Sarah Jane in a way that she has to much less uh, after the time passes and Su- Susan Conner takes over. I like the idea we just keep going and keep cutting down the performances of little children from the 50s. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think uh, it is entirely legitimate. Like those those children are not going to be hurt to uh, <laughs> have us complain about them on a podcast in 2021. The the way child actors were were used and what they were expected to do, how they were expected to play their roles was just very, very different back then. And, you know, we can look at uh, the clothing or the cabaret performances or the cocktail parties of a movie made in the 1950s and just like appreciate the style of something that was very different back then but for me like kid performances uh uh you know more than about 10 years old at this point are just often god like watching movies from the 80s with kids in them these days even sometimes the 90s it's just always so grating and artificial so yeah i i am not going to apologize in any way for that (laughs) Oh, I wasn't nice to the kid for come on, come on. That's 2021. So (laughs) complain about the kids are, I think they're fine. They don't have too much weight. I mean, Sarah Jane has to basically play an emotion that she doesn't understand as a kid. So Mm -hmm. there's a little more forgiving than that. You know, I, as the resident black person on this podcast, I feel like I need to defend one even more a little bit here, Uh, especially the comment about her smile. You know, I, immediately in my head, I saw something minstrelly, which I did not see when I watched this movie, whenever I watched this movie. And I'm quite in tune with what Black people were doing on the screen in all these movies back then. And certainly, I felt like her character 
has to be a little more passive and she can't can only do so many things and the movie tries to make that up to her by making her the more interesting character and the focal point of the film but basically i didn't have any issue with her smile or anything like that. i didn't think it was you know anything racist or anything like that there were other things that i thought might be a little questionable her living in a closet and that kind of thing <laughs> but i felt like you know i think it's don't think it's fair to throw that you know she has to kind of play a part with Lana Turner, she wants to move in with this woman, have a place to live. And really, you couldn't just go up to white people and tell them, you know, go F themselves. You had to play a little bit of a role. And I think that she's playing that role a little bit more initially. And then when they become kind of close, she kind of lets her guard down a little bit. She talks to, you know, Lana Turner. She offers advice to poor Sandra D. You know, you guys sound like Rizzo in, uh, in Greece, <laughs> picking on poor Sandra D and Troy Donahue, who's in this movie and in the Rizzo song in Greece. That's true. Yeah. But I feel like her character and what Cirque does with these, this plot is kind of a little bit unprecedented for a movie of the 50s. It puts her importance, you know, how many other movies do you have where a black character gets a white person's storyline and their funeral? You can look at all these women's pictures as they derisively called them back then, like Stella Dallas and those other things, were kind of the same kind of ending. You know, Barbara Stanwyck gives up her kid and she looks at it through the window and all these other things occur for these white actresses. We never get this for a black actress at all. And I found it to be fascinating that Cirque allowed this to occur by tricking the audience into thinking they were seeing a Lana Turner movie. So her character, you know, she can only do so much because of, what history is telling us that black people could do. And I felt like she got a lot better storyline and a lot better treatment than a lot of other actresses. You know, a, a lot of people ask why I love noir so much, my favorite genre of movie. And part of it is that noir usually doesn't have a lot of minority characters in it. When you watch these old movies, when a black person shows up, you know, you got to be prepared for that. And you have to be prepared that they're probably going to do something stupid or offensive or aggravating. You have to work that into your the love of the movie or dislike of the movie. And so I felt like watching this was far less cringeworthy than most of the movies I'd seen, even movies that I like, you know. So it's me defending this actress who, along with Susan Conner, did get nominated for the Oscar that year. No, I- they both lost. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel bad, like I feel because I I said the thing about her smile, and I think I uh, misrepresented what I, the point I was trying to to make there. With like I wasn't intending it to be an insult of uh, Juanita Moore's performance, more of the characterization of someone who I I read as being very tense in that that character being very tense in the first act of the movie as she is sort of finding her place or making her place in this dynamic while so. constantly n not wanting to look desperate and like trying to keep her dignity but also knowing that if she pushed too hard like this white lady could cause immense trouble for her mm -hmm. like there's just there's a huge tension there at first i i think that's fascinating odie i like i'm i'm really glad for that perspective because one of the things that kind of makes me sweat about this movie is that i can just feel the white gaze all over it with her character in particular there's just this feeling to me that i also get watching guess who's coming to dinner you know these message movies about the the humanity of black people in a an age where it feels like that had to be hammered home with with a giant sledgehammer again not necessarily that different from today but the the pressure on these characters to be perfect uh to be not only like perfect in terms of like everything they think and everything they want but in terms of everything they are uh sydney partier and and guess who's coming to dinner is just like so calculated to a fault to be non-offensive in so many ways for a white audience and i feel that here in the same kind of way it's just like somebody's like just standing behind the audience saying like look she's not too ambitious she's not too pushy she's not too loud she's not too strident she's not too needy she knows her place and it's just it, it's like ants on my skin sometimes like i just i want to see a little bit more of her like busting out as a a human being 
without that gaze on her. And one of the most fascinating moments in the movie to me is that moment where Lana Turner's character realizes for the first time that she does have a life and that Lana Turner's character has never gotten to see it. And just the the very, very gentle chiding of, you know, you never asked, but then nothing comes of it, you know? Turner's character doesn't say, like, take me to your church or introduce me to one of your friends or or anything. But, Have yeah. somebody over to the house. But she wouldn't do that. Of I mean, course not. But, but it's still. It. She wouldn't do this. And, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a horrible, horrible movie, you know, that was designed to basically neuter Sidney Poitier, who was the number one box office during 1967. I'm a year that started with In the Heat of the Night and went with To Serve With Love, my favorite movie of Sidney's. And at the end, with them putting him back in his place, and guess is coming to dinner. So I think it's a much different look at this message movie, both being message movies. But I think Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a much more intentional message movie where it look at these wonderful white liberal people and how much they're going to let Sidney Poitier, Poitier screw their daughter. And <laughs> this is a little sneakier. Stark's version is a little bit sneakier in terms of what he's doing with this, what he, what he can do. Remember, it's still Hollywood. It's still a big Ross Hunter production. His hands are tied in some ways. It's not necessarily making an excuse for Douglas Sirk, but I'm trying to put it in the context of the time it was made. It may make you uncomfortable because you just can't turn into, you know, Foxy Brown. <laughs> but this is the hand that you're dealt. And I feel like this is a good hand that I was dealt in terms of how I could deal with her character. And that it winds up that she is the focal point in the movie. She is basically the character you cry for. And when does that ever happen? Even Sidney Poitier in The Defiant Ones, no one's crying for him when he goes back to get Tony Curtis and lines getting going back to jail instead of getting away. This In this particular case, it's not the Black character doing something. I, in my piece on Imitation Life, I talked about how well, Annie Johnson wasn't what we call the noble Negro character because the noble Negro character suffers for the white people in the movie. Mm-hmm. And she's suffering for her Black daughter who does not love her. And that, to me, is completely different than some of these Stanley Kramer message movies that we got, you know, with the Black people or Sydney building that nice little chapel for those sweet little nuns and winning an Oscar for it, you know. So that's just my perspective. No, I I think you're exactly right. And I think that one of the reasons they're such different movies is that... Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is trying to make a, an intellectual argument for white liberals. And, and this movie is all emotion. Yes. You know, this movie is trying to cut straight to people's heartstrings and make them feel something. Whereas that movie is like a lecture, you know, being being delivered. Yeah, I think that moment we've been talking about, the the you never ask, is so important because it, it's it's about how being a white liberal isn't enough. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, just 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 not being a hateful person is 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 not enough to anymore. And I think it's, it's, it's a lot hangs on that moment, and it, it does come and go. But but you know, it, it takes you aback when it happens, and it kind of makes you look at everything you've seen before and everything you see after in a different light. And it's there. That's the most important thing. It's there. Mm-hmm. That moment yeah. is there. Yeah, that's, I mean, just in, I, like, I'm thinking of the whole era that, that Spike Lee mocked of magical black person characters who never wanted anything for themselves or had anything for themselves. And just this, like, little peek into her universe. So it does kind of chap me that we have to end this movie with her death. Like, we, we get all of this humanity out of her, but we still have to kill her off and, and cry for her. At the same time, I can't fault the movie for making it clear that this was her fantasy and that, that she got it. Like, the dignity of the funeral and the size of the funeral and, and just all of those people standing there. It's great theater. Even if you leave out the the added on business of her daughter repenting her her ways, but I don't know. At the same time, I I would like more for this character than for a white lady to realize for one second that she's human, and then for her to die dead, like to die beautifully, basically. Which is the theme of a lot of these movies, you know, leave a pretty corpse. <sighs> it is true, you know, and this is part of the genre of that. You're either gonna, you know, it's tragic. You're going to either wish you were dead or you're going to be dead, yeah. you know? And so I think, you know, we have to deal with that source material. I think that she had dreams. She wanted to basically have a beautiful going home ceremony. I think if I have an issue with all of this is the religiosity of it, you know, and how, you know, she's really churchy and everything like that. But then on the same token, you know, number one, I'm the son of a minister. And number two, 
you know, I went to black church and <laughs> this is, this, where's the lie in this mm-hmm. character is what I'm thinking in my head, you know. But as someone who's not religious anymore, it does kind of, the, all the, the cabin in the sky stuff and all the praying to God, you know, kind of like, eh. but, <laughs> but again, where's the lie? So I promised that we would get to the structure of this movie. And it, it's one of the things I like most about it. This idea that the whole movie is built around these four women who each want something significant that's kind of most of their world, really. And Cirque does set it up such that, like, I think I think the audience is very aware, as we mentioned earlier, that these four desires are not equal. Some of them are much more fraught and much more passionate, much more emotional than others. But to the characters, they're profound. To the characters, they're everything. And I, I really like the way the film is set up such that you can, you can see that, uh, like Laura's desire to be an actress is not on an equal footing with Sarah Jane's desire to not ever have to endure racism or Annie's desire to like connect with her child. There's a huge difference between a woman who wants to be an actress and a a child that wants to date her mom's boyfriend. <laughs> All of these things are very unequal. And I think the movie does a really good job of acknowledging both that they're they're radically unequal and that you don't have to sympathize with them equally while still not looking down on the any of the characters for what they desire. I just I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of the, the irony. The central irony of the film is is that so much time is spent on on these on these ultimately fairly minor issues, while these major issues are going around to you know while you know the, the Laura and uh, and uh, and Susie just don't even see them. I mean, I think it's interesting too, and this is true of the original as well uh, that that Susie and Sarah Jane are close friends in childhood, but don't really seem to have much time for each other as teenagers. It goes uncommented upon, but it's definitely present. Well, and their their mothers seem to have fallen into a pattern of kind of like just defaulting them toward each other. They've kind of like established this uh, foursome relationship that, you know, in the beginning of of the movie and in the past, you know, is kind of depicted very cozily, you know, and then when we jump into the future, you can see like those roles have kind of like calcified and gotten harder. Everyone except maybe Laura seems like more aware of it, but not really talking about it. Right. And also the whole idea of ambition, male ambition versus female ambition. I think it's in both versions. I think it's more prominent here. You know, if Lana Turner, if Dan O'Hurley decided that he had the same ambition as the writer, as Lana Turner had as wanting to be an actress, there wouldn't be any commentary about it. But it's almost like Laura's character is punished because she's driven and ambitious. And it winds up being kind of a, you know, you're a bad mother because you were trying to go out and do all these roles and you left poor, you know, Susie home. Juanita Morris says, I was a bad mother because I couldn't figure out how to explain to my child that the world she was born to be hurt, which I think is a great line in the movie. And I think it comes directly out of the book, if I remember correctly. There's not, they're not equal parenting issues, but I think there's kind of a, a part of the movie that kind of looks down on Lana Turner because she's driven and because she's a woman and because she's a mother and a single mother at that because she's widowed. And the fact that she has uh, career aspirations kind of, she has to be punished for that. And I think it's kind of under the surface. I think it's also part of Cirque's building the story to distract you. So you can go back and be more interested in Annie and Sarah Jane. I, I, I kind of noticed that every time I watch it, that if Shalana Turner had been a man, if it had been a father and a daughter, the movie would have treated her career a little bit differently. Yeah. If there's one thing that I just can't quite get behind in this movie in terms of what its belief system seems to be, like what its expectations of the audience are, it's the belief that that Laura is a bad mother because she she wants to be uh, on the stage and she wants to have a career. Like we see a great deal of her uh, being around for Susie and we see a great deal of her, her affection and her attention. And she seems to go out of her way to make the time for her at like, you know, the important events that the eighties and nineties movies were always having dads miss because they were too busy being on their cell phones. Yes. Like she's there for these things. She's at the graduation and at the little, like, you know, uh, presentations, little things that mother is just supposed to be at. 
you know, she's yeah. there. She does. I mean, she does make sacrifices for her daughter and she is she is not self-absorbed. She is involved in her, her world. But one of the other things I really like about the structure of this movie is it just feels so rare for cinematic stories to give two people who neither of whom are a villain uh, completely incompatible goals that the audience is meant to sympathize with. And here, Susie can't can't have Steve uh, because her mother wants Steve. Susie can't have her mother around 24-7 because her mother has ambitions. Those are not compatible goals. Like there, there might be a compromise on how often she's around. There is no compromise on on Steve. Like right. <laughs> one of them is going to be unhappy and, and Steve has his own considerations there. And even more so with Sarah Jane and and Annie, like their desires are just completely incompatible. And I don't, I'm not sure I know which way the movie leans in terms of, if it does have a leaning in terms of, of whose goals are reasonable here. I think that based on the way it ends, we're meant to see Sarah Jane as a selfish woman for, for her choices and for the way she treats her mother. I'm not sure how differently I would have responded in that era to basically being told that as long as my my helicopter mom was around, everybody would treat me like a second or fifth class citizen, you know, that the, the boy I love would not just reject me, but beat me in the streets with nothing ever said about it, you know, because he had the right to do that. The stuff that she does, you know, it's it's big and, and dark and emotional, but she's 18 years old and she's discovering racism. She starts discovering racism before she's even eight, you know? So I'm very curious how you all feel about what Sarah Jane wants and how she goes about it. In my piece, I said, she's the only person that grows and learns something in this picture. And I stand by that. She's changed. I'm not so sure that anybody else in the character in the movie has changed. I mean, obviously Annie's dead, but I think she kind of sees the error of her ways and learns a lesson and she grows despite the fact that it's tragic that this is what she has to go through. Personally, I hate her character. I hated her and I watched it again yesterday and I still hate her. I mean, like violent hatred of this character. And I've always felt that way. But at at the same time, I get it. Um, I understand why. And I don't think the movie's clear enough in terms of why she wants to do this. I think it's kind of, I'm bringing something to the movie that I know about. So it's not, it's kind of like surface level why she wants to pass. I mean, it's just, it's there very simplistically. You know, I think passing gets into a lot more deeply than than this does. But, you know, in some ways she's the villain, but in the same token, you know, this is going to be horrible to compare it to like, you know, Star Wars. But eventually, Darth Vader learns his lesson <laughs> and turns into a Jedi. And I think she learns her lesson here, but she's the villain. But at the end of the movie, you, you can't help but feel some sympathy for her. But it's I'm con- conflicted about her. I've always been conflicted about her character. And, and I think the one thing that I know for sure is that I just she just makes me so damn mad. <laughs> <laughs> I. Definitely felt that more as for when she was a child, because <laughs> I guess I, I just hate children, and it's like much easier to to be mad at her as a child. But well, she's an obnoxious child. child, exactly, exactly. But like to be fair, they're both pretty obnoxious children. Yes, but they, yeah, yeah, she's a very obnoxious child. Yes, and sure, she doesn't know any better. But I think as far as like where she changes, I, I do want to bring in sort of the her and Aunt, I guess her and Annie's last scene together, I was gonna say their penultimate scene, but Annie's not in that, that last scene. But in when Annie goes to see her in, in Hollywood and goes to her room, and they have that exchange where like, she basically says like, bye, but also I'm always here, you know, and there's that moment where she mouth as she's saying goodbye, and she mouths mama. Mom. And it's comes like right after her friend assumes she was her mammy. So just like the the contrast there, I think like is really sharply done. But as far as the character of Sarah Jane, I feel like that is kind of the moment where she she really sees what she's doing. She's she's young and she's headstrong and she's not going to change her behavior at this point. But I think her heart is maybe changed in that moment. Yeah, that's probably um, best scene. I mean. 
if yeah. the scene when she throws stuff on the coffin is great, but this is such a for one subtle moment. You said it was a big performance. This mm-hmm. is the one subtle moment in the movie, and I think it's the most effective one because you do kind of see underneath it that she's not just a villain. You know that she she mm-hmm. realizes what she's doing. Mm-hmm. She's not going to stop, like you say, but at least there's that acknowledgement, knowing it's half the battle. Yeah, it, really, in that moment, I'm more willing to cut her slack for being young than I'm willing to cut her slack for being young when she's eight. You know, because like <laughs> just eight, like eight, eighteen years old. You know, she's she's an adult. You know, she's figuring out how the the adult she's going to be in the world, and like, you know, she does have a lot more context than she did then, and I think it's just. Um, like I said, I'm able to cut her a lot more slack as a quote unquote hateable character in that moment. I think the movie also kind of like does her a big favor there in terms of, again, just the structure of it. I think throughout the movie to her, like she's obviously Annie is her mother. She's aware of, of Annie as her mother. But Annie is also a giant symbol in her life. Annie is just a symbol of of blackness and the weight of racism that comes with black identity and and black skin and black identification. And she spends most of the movie, I think, trying to shrug her mother off because she's trying to shrug that identity off. She's trying to shrug off racism itself. And I think the reason that that moment between them hits home so hard is it's the moment where she has to acknowledge for the first time in a way that she's never acknowledged before that shrugging off this identity also means shrugging off a living human being that loves her that's right in front of her and it's i don't think it's the first time she sees her mother as a person but i think maybe it's the first time she truly reconciles herself to the fact that this fantasy she has of her mother just going away and being invisible again can't be reconciled with the actual person that loves her like the 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 fantasy and the reality are are too different and she can't have one without without the other still being real and painful and in front of her i'm having a hard time reconciling how you can be so eloquent about the complexities of that moment and not be touched by this movie tasha (laughs) um i i I didn't say that i wasn't touched uh i said that i didn't cry which is uh, a very different a very different barrier for me but no that moment i will say there have been movies that i i did cry at that i specifically cried over this is this is gonna i'm glad scott's not here because he'd mock me up one wall and down the other (laughs) and you two both may still do it but there have been movies except that genevieve and i have talked about this the spectacle tears sometimes i get construction tears where i see something is just like so exquisitely put together uh that i i cry at the brilliance of it odie you're nodding you've Mm. had this experience yeah Anything Absolutely. anything particular come to mind? Before Sunset. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. It's funny. Sometimes I'm watching a movie and it gets to a point and I get religious again and I pray that the movie will end. Not because I <laughs> wanted to, that I'm not, I'm not enjoying it, but this is the perfect moment for it to end. Hmm. And the only time that prayer was ever answered was Before Sunset. Hmm. I said, this movie hmm. needs to end right now. And the movie ended and I was stunned. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I love it. So speaking of the perfect moment, let's let's just let's just call this this here. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about imitation of life plenty more in the next episode when we talk about passing. In the meantime, we'll uh, after a brief break, we'll be back with feedback. So now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. I'm kind of shocked no one wrote in with commentary on Persona. so much to unpack there. But we did get a letter from Scotland about Last Night in Soho. Tasha, could you read that one? Sure. Stuart in Edinburgh writes, Hi, all. Regarding your question about the racial aspect of Last Night in Soho's bedroom slash seeming attack scene, I definitely didn't have the same reaction as you guys. I did think he'd be in trouble if the police came, but I don't think my reaction would have been different had he been white, and I definitely wouldn't have crossed my mind that his life might be in danger. I do live in Edinburgh, which is definitely not the most racially diverse part of the UK, not compared to London anyway, so it's likely that reactions might vary across the country. I'd be interested in hearing more views. This got me thinking about something I was wondering about a few years ago when you covered Detroit on the pod. Do you notice significant differences between U.S. and British critics to films that deal with race? I ask because I feel like the U.K. critical reception to Detroit was much more positive than your reaction to the show. 
and in general from U.S. critics. There seemed to be a general U.S. view that you all know racism slash police brutality is bad and still happening, so why would you want to see something showing it being bad in the past? Conversely, in the UK, I think there was critically a more positive reaction to Green Book from the reviews I read at the time, and it also seemed to be the opposite with Black Panther, which was Golden Globe nominated, and which US critics I respect have talked up as an Oscar contender. But I don't think many UK critics listed it as a film of the year, with Infinity War ranking higher. A lot of these thoughts are things I noted down at the time, and I'm sure some reactions have changed in the time since. But it would be interesting to get a discussion between the four of you and some UK critics to get into it a bit. I listened to the Mark Kermode film podcast from the BBC and to the Empire Film Podcast to give some detail about where I'm getting my UK film coverage. Well, we don't have any UK critics no. on the on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, I was, Mark Kermode and, and the, the Empire people are welcome to join us anytime they like. Um, <laughs> but, but they have not reached out. Well, yeah. here, here's the interesting thing. And, and, and shout out to Edinburgh. I saw my 40th birthday there. Nice. Uh, <laughs> the issue with colorblind casting is that no thought is ever put into the fact that you have substituted someone in for a character that would by default be white or straight or whatever. And so what happens is you wind up getting into trouble like this, where the optics of what is happening, they were not thought through. I give two great examples. There was a a Michael B. Jordan movie uh, that, that was based on Tom Clancy character who would previously been played by several white actors. That wasn't the issue with me watching the movie. The issue was there's a big speech about why America is racist in this movie. And basically the white character tells Michael B. Jordan that it's because Americans are bored. And I said this had to be written before they cast a black actor in this part. And if you want to go back even further, uh, Morgan Freeman's character in The Bonfire of the Vanity is probably one of the most egregious quote-unquote colorblind casting choices I've ever seen. The problem with this movie, among many, is that I I wonder how necessary this scene was at all, Black character or not. I think it would play differently with a white character because you would not have the optics of thinking the cops are going to come and arrest them or he's going to get in trouble. And more embarrassingly is the lack of reaction by the character after this happens. Really, I would run the opposite direction from this woman. But he's like, oh, you know, let me help you out. And that, to me, is a bigger, bigger problem. And I think the, the, the letter writer didn't see this probably because it never crossed his mind. You know, there are a lot of things that I watch that, uh, you know, women will come back and point things out to me that I never saw because I'm not a woman. And I mean, I've been thinking on that wavelength. But in terms of colorblind casting, it's never done with any thought toward what happens when you put that person in and you visually see them. I think that's the problem with Last Night in Soho, that particular scene, which kind of, in my opinion, sinks the movie. It's, it's irredeemable after that. Yeah, it's it's just really problematic. And just in terms of it, like any attempt made to see to make that character, John, seem like a person, I think, disappears utterly when he comes back after that with no questions. Mm-hmm and no indignation and no curiosity even about what's going on. And all of his concern is for her. I just, you know, there's unbelievable uh, behavior in movies. And then there's just behavior that you just can't track as human at all. And, And nothing about his response to that, that entire incident, like regardless of race, even regardless of gender, if it was a, a woman in that scene and the man she was making out with suddenly freaked out and started screaming and, and flailing at things that she couldn't see and a landlady burst in and threatened her life and she had to run away, you would expect her to be curious about it the next morning and and alarmed. You know, there's there's just no dynamic under which that that later response to uh, to the character works. Right. You're not wrong. I just kind of wrote him off as a love, love struck kid <laughs> when I watched it. But, uh, and I actually do, I, I, you're, you know, I've, I've sort of have thought about that scene uh, many more times since uh, we, we had the, you know, since reading, uh, you know, Robert Daniels at RogerEbert.com and, and talking about it on the show. And, uh, yeah, I think there's, 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 uh, uh, there's, there's something going on there. I, it is the, the UK US divide is interesting. I, I don't know if it's universal. Um, I don't know this necessarily pointed out over there as well. So, um, well, it's, I, mean, it's, we, I, I just think to uh, go back to this letter, I just I think it's interesting just to hear Stuart lay out the 
different critical reactions to all these other films mm-hmm. you know um like i I, I, I'm sorry, Stuart, we don't have we haven't done like a deep survey of, of UK film critics for you. Maybe uh, down down the road, we, we, we will. But I'm just responding to this, you know, as, as me being interested in the UK critical reception to Detroit being more positive. Like I now I kind of want to go and, and know book. why that why that was and in Green Book, too. Um, I mean, obviously, Green Book, I mean. yeah, I, I, yeah. And see, that's the thing when you talk about critical reception and audience reception and award reception, you know, like they're not always the same thing. And it's and in US criticism circles, like they, they get real mashed up together, I think. Um, and when you add something as, you know, fraught as uh, race relations in uh, America in 2021 to that, like it just becomes kind of even more messy to be like, there is one reaction to this film that is the reaction to this film. Yeah, it it honestly had never occurred to me to survey UK critics and see how they respond differently, really to anything. I mean, not just to race, but, you know, to movies that are fundamentally about America that are made in America or movies that are fundamentally about the UK that are made in America versus movies about either America or the UK made over there and, and imported here. Like all of these things seem like they'd be interesting to survey in terms of, you know, if there's anything like a a cogent single national reaction, just like on average, how critics uh, looked at these things differently. Now, Stuart's got me really curious to actually kind of dig into this. The small acts would be a good comparison. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, I I love, I review all five of the small acts movies at rogeriever.com. And I had the, the one that I liked the least was the one that a lot of Brits really liked because it was about a character, a real person that they knew. And I didn't know anything about this person at all. And so I had no attachment to them. And so this, the movie was kind of flat for me. But I think it would play it a lot better if I had known, you know, if I had the history of that particular lead character. It might have been more forgiving. You know, it would have, may not have been as flat. I would have known more. And the shorthand would have played better. Which one was, was that? That was the Alex Weedle. Ah, uh, gotcha. Sure. Yeah, that, that that I think you're. I kind of with you. That's maybe the least, in some ways, the most least memorable. Which means it, you know, it's also very good. But uh, it's good. Uh, in context, but yeah. Well, we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, uh, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow dot net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Passing, Rebecca Hall's film about complicated friendships and semi-porous racial boundaries in early 20th century New York. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be shooting a film in Italy, but you know, we'll be back. We'll, we'll, we'll be back. Weeping and wailing No more Weeping and wailing No more Weeping Oh